I'm Chance. And I'm Sarah Catherine. And this is Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. We are a husband and wife team running a wildlife education nonprofit. It's focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that. Introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals in the world of conservation science and wildlife management, and we ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with EarthX here in Dallas, Texas. EarthX is the largest Earth Day celebration in the world, and it brings in speakers from every corner of the environmental arena. Listen in to hear the stories of today's environmental titans, covering everything from environmental law, ocean health, renewable energy, clean transportation, and so much more. Let's get to the show. Welcome, everybody, to another EarthX episode of Conservation Connection. We're really excited. We were sitting down in a room with Dr. Mike Slattery. He is the director of the Institute for Environmental Studies at Texas Christian University. He is the mastermind behind the TCU Rhino initiatives, and he also does a lot of work at the tropical research station that TCU has in the cloud forests of Costa Rica. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for making time here at the EarthX conference. Could you give us a little bit of a background of where you came from and how you got to TCU? Yeah, sure. So I am South African born and raised and lived there for 24 years. Um, did my undergrad and honors degree uh, in Johannesburg. And those degrees were in geography uh, and environmental science broadly. So my training uh, right from the outset was more of a generalist than a specialist and interested in, you know, the feedback cycles between how humans impact the environment and vice versa. And then uh, did my graduate degrees uh, overseas in Toronto and at Oxford. And then I taught in North Carolina for three and a half years. And as always, most roads lead to Texas. And so uh, <laughs> I'll agree with that. There you go. And uh, so in 1998, I got the opportunity to join the faculty at TCU and have not looked back. That's a long and winding road. I'm glad you landed in my home state of Texas, which I love dearly. This generalist background that you have has really allowed you to be very nimble and very able to look at these environmental issues from lots of different lenses. So you, you kind of do a little bit of everything. What are some of your current focuses? Well, uh, there's, uh, there's really three for me. One is, and it's been an ongoing focus throughout my career, and it's where a lot of my research is, is on human impact on river systems. Uh, so I'm a fluvial guy, fluvial just meaning, you know, water-related issues. And uh, so I've always been fascinated by uh, water flowing downhill and sediment following along, uh, as odd as that sounds. And so that's been, uh, that's been a, th a thrust of my research. But then over the years, and one of the great things about TCU is we focus not just on research. It's a very balanced institution between teaching and research. And so I've had uh, the opportunity, which I'm very grateful for, to expand my horizons outside of the, the physical classroom into places like Costa Rica and South Africa. So, you know, the, the research focus is still very much on rivers, uh, but we do uh, both teaching and research uh, in Costa Rica, which I think would be my second Big area of emphasis, uh, magical place, beautiful country, beautiful people, and very environmentally sound and astute. And so it's a wonderful sort of poster child, you know, a living lab for the struggles that humanity faces between preservation of the environment and, and development and how we, you know, how we balance that. And then the third one, uh, which uh, has been a real joy for me over the last six years, is to be involved back home in South Africa on the rhino conservation. 
I would love to kind of take a deeper look into the research station in Costa Rica. If you could give us kind of an overview of the layout of that research station even and some of the projects that you all focus on when you're there. Mm. No, I'd love to. So in 2006, on one of my study abroads, our guide on the trip, who's a National Geographic guide, said to me one day that, why don't we stop by at my friend's farm? It's about an hour into the cloud forest. Uh, We need four-wheel drives to get there. But he has this dream of opening a facility for students to become completely immersed, you know, literally off the beaten track, uh, completely disconnected from cell phone service, but utterly connected to the natural environment. And um, it sounded intriguing. And so we did. We just stopped by for a lunch, and he had started the structure. It's a, a fairly small farm. Uh, about 100 hectares, so that's about 240-something acres in American language. And he had started building this uh, really gigantic treehouse in the, in the canopy. And, you know, one of the great joys for me was to then sit down with the students that night once we'd had our lunch and had left to another place. And I said to the students, I uh, got them all into my hotel room, and I said, look, you know, this is, this is just a gem sitting here waiting to be developed. Why don't I challenge you to write a grant to the university and see if we can help finish the station and, and make it our own? Uh, and that's, that's what, amazing. Yeah, that's what they did. You know, and as the, one of the wonderful things about TCU is we have a very flat structure and it's, it's very easy to go straight to the chancellor uh, <laughs> who is just this broad-visioned uh, guy who, who makes things happen. And, and it's very hard for chancellors to say no to students. Uh, so we planted the seeds with the students and, they, and we got uh, an injection of cash to finish out the facility, build two faculty cabins in a primary rainforest. TCU doesn't physically own it. The owner, who's also a National Geographic guide and an ecologist, he owns it. But we, we call it our own. We do all the maintenance. We provide all the infrastructure. Uh, and other universities are welcome to use it. But we go in there. And immerse these students in field teaching, and they do some ecologically-based research. But we've also had several graduate students do their theses down there, ranging from three-dimensional modeling of the hydraulics of the rivers, uh, which again comes back to my first love. Uh, we've had students digging soil pits and looking at the chemical, physical changes in soils under primary and secondary growth, uh, all the way through to students doing studies on ecotourism. So again, broad. Um, Very but broad. It's, yeah, it's this amazing place where... You connect unlike I've, I ever have in a, in, a, in a cloud forest, yeah. And it sounds like you're not just connecting with nature, you're disconnecting from this kind of highly technological, yeah. constantly communicating world. Yeah, everything's just such instant gratification. And, you know, we make these students do all the measurements by hand and they have to do all the calculations by hand and they have to plot all of the data, you know, physically drawing X and Y axes in a field notebook. And they tear their hair out because they realize they could do this in, in under a minute on an Excel spreadsheet, but it takes them a day. But they get to really understand their data and take great pride in what this field notebook looks like at the end of the at the end of the program. They've got a, you know, a sort of pride and ownership of the data and what they've done. It's a bit sort of old school, but I think it's good for them. Sometimes the old ways are, are good yeah, ways. No, absolutely. I a personal anecdote from that. Uh, I love photography. Digital photography is something that I've been in for a long time. But I was actually the last grade in my high school to learn on 35 millimeter film and to use enlargers and to use chemical baths to develop our own stuff. And I know without a, a shadow of a doubt that I am a much better photographer 
for understanding the analog way that it was done mm -hmm. before it got so easy with digital cameras. You're so much, when you only have 24 exposures on a roll of film, you're not sitting there, snap, 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 right. snap, 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 snap. think about it. <laughs> right, you're thinking about it, you're measuring things and you're really, really putting a lot of focused thought into it. And I, I love that even though you could do it in an mm -hmm. Excel spreadsheet, that they get the experience of yep. really deep diving into that data mm -hmm. analysis by hand. That's, I'm sure not great at the time experientially, yeah. but it, yeah. it's got to give them so much pride in what the, the yeah. work that they're doing. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, something I love about this podcast, Conservation Connection, is that we hopefully give access to people who didn't even know that this program existed and they don't know that these opportunities are out there. And if they're looking at, you know, what school do I want to go to? What do I really want to study? You know, hopefully someone may hear this and be like, this program sounds like mm. exactly what I want to do. I know that probably would have been me if and I had me. heard this episode. And I was like, yep, want to go to TCU and I want to study in the environmental science. Yeah, department. it's it's. I'm glad you said that. And, and thanks for that. It's um, and there are many great schools, right? And I think what I would encourage any young person out there who's looking at university, obviously, we'd love to have them at TCU, but mm -hmm. um, is to look beyond just the degree program to look beyond the formal web page and make contact with the department and ask those kind of questions. What collaborative field immersive opportunities are there outside of a particular department because departments can be very you know territorial and turf oriented we work in these academic silos but very often there's these sort of collaborative integrative programs um, across departments and and I've been you know quite I think focused on building those types of programs and you know and that's why when we go to Costa Rica and South Africa I never limit it to just environmental science majors because taking 14 tree huggers to the cloud forest is great <laughs> but you know the, yeah, it's a pretty easy audience but it's but if you're dealing with you know difficult environmental issues you need a broad range of perspectives and you need some people to ask some probing questions and you need business people to go hang on a second how do we wrap a business model around that organic farm when clearly it's not sustainable? You know, those types mm -hmm. of things that make for a richer right. experience. So, yeah, I, I really encourage students to to drill down into, into the programs and see what kind of study abroad, semester abroad, international programs are available. Now, before we move on from this topic, just for my knowledge, can you define <laughs> a cloud forest? Mm, it's a forest in the clouds. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's a it's a tropical rainforest. But it's at an elevation where the tree line is essentially permanently in the cloud base. Now, that's not strictly true because, you know, clouds disappear and come back. But most of the precipitation and the moisture is directly, you know, very closely linked to the cloud base that sits on and within the canopy, as opposed to storm systems or clouds that may be several, you know, 100,000 feet above the forest and you get convective you know, strong thunderstorms, this is more of a long, prolonged, continual feeding of the hydrologic cycle from the clouds that wrap around the, the forest. And our research station is at an elevation where it's, you know, right in the base of the cloud forest. But interestingly, with climate change over the last two decades, the, the owner of the station has noticed how that cloud forest base has began lifting. Oh, wow. um, and so that has dramatically changed the water supply to the forest. So we're, you know, we're able to observe and measure real-time changes Despite all of the denial in many parts of the world, uh, especially here in the United States, climate change is, is absolutely tangible in places like this. 
Okay, so as much as I would love to talk about <laughs> Costa Rica and cloud forests, and there's a whole bunch of like, I did herpetology in my undergrad. So Costa Rica, the, the amphibians that are there and what happened with them and chytrid fungus is mm -hmm. fascinating. I'd like to move on to, to bigger things, to, to <laughs> not necessarily bigger, but the next thing. Yeah, I would love to hear more about the rhino initiative mm. that you have going on here at TCU. Mm. Yeah, so this developed, like many things, sort of serendipitously. TCU had a program, has just finished a program called Global Innovators. And what that was, was the Board of Trustees freed up some money for faculty to innovate uh, and come up with initiatives and programs that would be either, you know, too expensive to capitalize through normal research granting uh, agencies. But this program was interesting because every semester they would choose a region of the world and they'd say, okay, here's a, here's a particular region, preferably a developing region. And they would ask for competitive proposals from faculty to identify a person doing extraordinary work on the ground bring them to TCU, not just for a one-hour lecture and wave goodbye, but to bring them for a week and then immerse them in our culture and get them to work very closely with our students. But then most critically, once we sent them back to their developing country or region, to figure out how we can turn around and support their program long-term. And it turns out that in uh, November of 2013, it was Southern Africa. And so I, you know, I saw this and I thought, huh, I've been waiting for a long time to find the right outlet to take my students back to South Africa. And things change, you know, uh, evolved very quickly. I Skyped my brother who lives in Port Elizabeth uh, on the eastern seaboard, southeastern seaboard. I explained the program. I said I wanted to do something that was not political, preferably something that was conservation oriented, but had a strong animal human dimension to it. And he was the one who turned me on to Dr. William Folds, who is a wildlife vet in the region. I'd heard of him and uh, I emailed him. Within 24 hours, we had a, a Skype date and an agreement that he would come over to TCU. So it was just, it was a, uh, an incredible set of circumstances. And we brought him over in April of 2014. Uh, and he really transformed our community. He gave multiple lectures, multiple seminars, worked with several schools, and we worked him very hard for a week. But he changed a lot of our careers by tapping into this crisis, this environmental human catastrophe that's developing in South Africa. And so, you know, I, w again, went to the dean, went to the provost and the chancellor and said, hey, guys, how about we start this initiative? And it would take a study abroad and to, to get that going. And then it evolved into something much bigger than just simply taking students to the field. Can you give me an overview of some of the threats that rhinos are facing and some of the, I know that it's an incredibly complex issue. Mm. There's lots of human factors, lots of environmental factors. What are some of the, the big things that we're looking to solve right now? Well, as it pertains to the rhinos specifically, you know, they are quite literally under the gun here from poaching. So this is all part of the of a very large global trade in wildlife products. And we think that trade is somewhere between 8 to 25, maybe even $30 billion a year. It's one of the largest environmental crimes. You know, we think about deforestation as one. But the trafficking of wildlife is another. And we can start putting in ivory and, and lion bones and pangolin scales and shark finning and, you know, turtles, you name it. So it's this enormous global trade in products most frequently funded and fueled by crime syndicates, international crime syndicates. And you're right, the word complex is, is really relevant here because it's not just a couple of poor people running around the African bush killing an animal. It's a, it's a very, very well-orchestrated, well-funded set of networks. Um, but specifically with rhinos, they're under threat because their horns are enormously valued in Southeast Asia for all sorts of reasons. And so that is providing an enormous demand and has done so for about a decade where the demand has been created to get the products into Vietnam and China, 
and the supply country happens to be South Africa, which is home to about two-thirds of all the world's rhinos. So that species is specifically now uh, under real threat. And we're, you know, I know environmentalists sometimes tend to overstate their case, but I, I think it's not overstating the case that within a decade or two, we're looking at the species being gone unless we solve this problem. So that's the, that's the direct and specific threat to the rhino. So a large hope with the TCU Rhino Initiative is to basically kind of put this back into the hands of the people in South Africa, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so the hope is that they take care of this issue and care about the issue themselves. That's, that's correct, and and that is absolutely the end point. So when someone says to me, what is the solution, right? You've just nicely captured what the solution is. The problem is that solution is is sometime down the line. We don't know how far down the line that is, but it's it's multiple years and probably decades down the line. And so we're now in this time crunch between trying to make that solution a reality, but at the same time, wrap as much protection around these animals so we can buy ourselves time to figure out how to put these animals back into the hands uh, of Africans. I know that can sound condescending, you know, that the West knows the answers and we're going to solve this by putting the, the future of, of Africa's animals back into the hands of of Africans themselves, but they know it. This is their natural heritage, right? Uh, so why is this happening? Well, it's happening because we don't have any alternatives for them. Poverty and habitat fragmentation are rife. And when someone in the bush gets approached by a poacher or a poaching syndicate to not even necessarily go and poach an animal, but just tell them where these animals are, and they can get the equivalent of something like one to four years of salary just by telling them that, and then put food on the table for their family for the next year or more. That's an easy decision. I would probably make the same decision. So that's what we're up against. You know, when I, whenever I talk about the rhino crisis and what I've learned over the, the last few years is that most people have that visceral reaction. Well, let's just arm everybody and go and shoot poachers. You know, we're not going to be able to shoot our way out of this crisis, no matter how sophisticated our helicopters and our drones and, and any of that is. Uh, we can't fight our way out of this. We can certainly begin to hopefully stem you know, the tide of poaching. And at the same time, we have to tackle the demand reduction in uh, in Southeast Asia. We have to try and re- rehabilitate and protect these animals as best we can. But it all simply comes down to finding a way for these local communities to protect them themselves in the long, in the long run. And in South Africa is an interesting one, right? Because you know, there's still such a very strong legacy of apartheid there. And why would, how could we expect a local to see an intrinsic value to a rhino when, you know, when they don't have a job, their parents didn't have a job, the value of them as a human being is is based simply on the, or was based simply on the color of their skin. They see the rhino as the white man's rhino, not the black man's rhino. And so we have to change that quickly. Um, and that's, uh, that's going to come through socioeconomic change. I think that brings up a, a really good point. And in my personal journey with conservation and, and learning to care about the natural world, I think most people go through these levels of understanding where you see an animal and you think, oh, that's really cool. I want to take care of it. Mm. And you learn that they're under threat from something like poaching. And so you say, oh, well, let's just make it illegal or let's protect the animals, just the animals. Mm. You know, let's put armed guards by it. And then you come to realize that the, the problem doesn't necessarily lie in that behavior. That is a symptom Correct. of an underlying cause. And, Correct. and going back to the idea that someone can walk up and offer one to four years salary to somebody who is struggling financially, who is just, their concern is keeping their family alive. Right. That is a basic human desire. And the issue comes in that we have to find ways to solve that problem. That's the problem you have to solve. 
in order to protect the animals that we want to protect. You have to go all the way back to the root instead of just dealing with the symptoms of this issue. That's absolutely right. And so that has a long historical precedent. And now we're suddenly up against this very short time frame to try and to try and do this. And, you know, many of these eco reserves, these game reserves, which are not hunting reserves. So you bring tourists in for this wonderful African experience and they sit at sunset and have a gin and tonic and watch the animals at the watering hole and they pay huge amounts of money for that privilege because it's very expensive to run a game reserve. To someone living in a local community that doesn't have potable water or electricity, you know, you sit there and go, well, what about me? You know, right. how, how do I benefit from this, this wildlife unless, unless I'm an active game ranger or I'm, you know, an owner of a game reserve? You're very peripheral to the whole thing. And that's why, uh, you know, we, we support some programs on the ground uh, that are focused on awareness of school kids, bringing school kids into the reserve for the very first time in their life to ever see an, an, uh, an elephant or a rhino. That's where we have to, you know, make the change. I mean, if you've never seen it, even if it's your country's animal. It's yep. not your animal. Absolutely. And yep. just that simple connection of, oh, that's right here. That's got to be so powerful. Yeah. No, it really is. Yeah. It really is. And so this program has been going on for about four years, mm-hmm. four or five years. A little long, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen an impact since the beginning to now? Mm. I have. And uh, so that impact isn't measured in the metric of the number of rhinos that are poached every year in South Africa, because that number is still high and catastrophic. And it's controversial because we don't really know how many they are. Uh, We don't know where this tipping point really is between the numbers being poached and and the natural births. But the impact that I've seen, uh, one in my students, everyone that comes back from that trip is an advocate. Some go on to do, you know, do other things that are well outside of rhino conservation. But I know everyone, you know, we, we've we turned every one of those uh, young men and women into advocates for wildlife conservation. So that's been very powerful. And several have gone on to do really great things, like our Vietnamese students that we take on the trip have gone back to Vietnam and done, you know, multiple presentations at high schools and, and sort of galvanized. And we're just one speck on, on the map of conservation here, but, but that's been very powerful. Certainly, resources are important. At the end of the day, it doesn't, you know, we don't want to just talk about money, but there's a, there's a hard reality. And the reality is if you are a game reserve that wants to offer the quintessential African experience, and many people from overseas, rightly or wrongly, want to come and see the so-called big five, right? These big animals that are the lion and the leopard and the African buffalo and the elephant and the rhino, those are the, the so-called big five. Then as a reserve, you, you'd better have those big five animals. Well, to have rhino now costs so much to protect. So the reserves we, we work with are directing something like 40 to 50% of their annual operating budget just to protection, right? Fencing, trackers, the collars that we have to put on the animals, the anti-poaching units, the salaries, the drones, the aerial surveillance, you name it, the dog units, the equine units. It's very, very expensive work. And so if, if, if you're losing 50% of your budget, then something's got to give. Yeah. Um, so I've seen an impact there where we've been able to leverage the resources of TCU, the very generous donations of some of our alumni and some of which I've taken to the field, which has been a, a great way to, you know, to inspire people, not to be sort of shady about it and, and pretend that you're trying to get into people's pockets, but to say to people who, who have means, and there are lots of people who have means here, and not just people of means, but people who want to help. They want to find avenues to make their money work. 
And so I have no shame in, you know, spending time with wealthy people who want to make a difference. And But you've got, it's got to resonate with them, you know. So I've seen impacts on the grounds where, you know, we're now able to begin to direct resources to protection at the reserve we're working at and cover things like collaring and medical procedures where the game reserve can then direct their resources elsewhere where it's needed. So that's, you know, that's been, that's been really encouraging to see. It's one step in a very long and complex solution, yeah. but it's certainly a very important yeah. step. No, it is. Someone's got to get the ball rolling somewhere. And so that's been that's been great to see that start. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting that you say, you know, there's you don't have any shame in taking money from people who have it who want to make a difference. Um, I saw a video recently with Steve Irwin and he, ta- mm-hmm. he you know, he says, if you have the money to give me, I don't care where it comes from. I will take it and turn it into something good, something yeah. to help the planet. Yeah. And that's really that's really what matters is what you do with that. It is. It is what matters. It, it's an interesting comment that because for many people, it does matter where the money comes from, right? And that's another ethical dilemma, you know, that we have in wildlife conservation. And it raises issues of, you know, hunting and where, do, where does the hunting community fit in? Uh, that's a, you know, can of worms. And, I, and, and the one thing that I've loved as being part of this initiative is to, is to have the space to have those conversations. And that's one thing I will just, uh, I know this seems like a, a just a, a shameless plug, but I I will give a plug to Trammell Crow and EarthX because this has created that space to be able for people who are not interested in hunting at all, like me, to be able to sit down with people who do hunt and find some common ground and, and figure out what, you know, what is the outcome? The outcome is we, we all want these animals alive, but also understanding that, you know, there's a large proportion of the population where you say, well, we've got to shoot a few to save a lot. And some people go, well, I don't think the, you know, I have no interest in that. And it's a very, very complex, difficult, emotional conversation to have. But yeah, at the end of the day, there's people here who really, you know, who really want to help and, and really want to make a difference. And we all have our causes and this just happens to be mine. That's something we've heard over and over and over and over here at EarthX is that this space, this event is such a level playing field yeah. for anybody from any walk of life to say, here's my issue. Let's have a conversation without being combative, without, you know, it devolving into me versus you, but in becoming let us together solve this problem right. so that you work from your end, I work from my end, and we come to a mutual agreement. That's right, because we don't have the space for, you know, what is sometimes referred to as intentional dialogue. You know, we're shouting at each other. You're either watching CNN or you're watching Fox. We're yelling at one another. You're either wearing blue or you're wearing red, and we're demonizing all of this, right? And... And that's just not helpful, I, I think. And, you know, I'm not trying to convert people either way. What I'm, all I'm simply saying is our natural heritage is being stolen from under our feet. And at some point, we're going to have to wake up and go, hang on a second. You know, the reality is, according to the World Wildlife Fund, more than 50% of the world's wildlife has gone since 1970. I mean, we are in a mass extinction here. There's no, no other way to put it. And we can either sit back and do nothing and squabble, or we can try and fix it. We can realize that it affects all of us equally. Yeah. So no matter where you stand, yep. the only way forward is working together. Yep, 100%. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground here. Yep. I, I think we could keep talking to you for about another hour, probably. Totally. <laughs> Join us for episode 77. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Part yeah. 93. Yeah. Now, okay. if people wanted to find your work or find more about you and these initiatives, where could they go to find this? Yeah, so there's two places. One, I would go to uh, environment.tcu.edu. 
so that's where the Institute is housed and the Rhino Initiative and the Costa Rica Research Station are under that. So you'll see some stuff there. The other one for the rhinos in particular is planetrhino.com. That is, it's a global portal. It was designed and it's funded and it's housed on the TCU servers. So it is certainly our initiative, but it's it's not meant to be TCU-centric. So it's a global portal for people to learn more about the crisis. And the website is informative, but we get a lot of our traction through social media. So through Facebook and through Twitter and through Instagram, and that is Planet Rhino. So if you go and look, you know, just go and search for Planet Rhino, uh, we push out about probably something like four to six tweets a day, not just rhinos, but broad conservation pieces that people can engage in. So planetrhino.com is a great place for the rhino and environment.tcu.edu. If you're listening, check out the show notes. We'll have that link right down there. So just scroll down. You can get some more information if you're interested in that. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We really appreciate it. You bet. What a pleasure. Go Frogs. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We would love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email. We love questions from our listeners. So if you heard something that you want to know more about, be sure to let us know. We'll post bonus content that addresses your questions and gives you a little more information. A big thanks to EarthX for hosting us and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week. Bye.